Lord, thank you for the infinite amount of grace and love that you've shown to me and to many others. You are so merciful and loving. Fill me with your spirit so that your name will be glorified and let your spirit rest on everyone who hears this word that their hearts will be convicted and that for those that believe that their hearts will be just overflowing with joy at the sound of your gospel so please Lord just Glorify your name and just let everything that's be said be your word and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, to begin, I'm going to say a couple things about the gospel. First, <laughs> in regards to preaching the gospel, I find it easy and impossible. It's easy in the sense that all I have to do is just repeat what the Bible says. That's all. It's impossible, however, that what I have to try to explain is a love that is beyond understanding. I mean, Paul says when he's praying for the Ephesians that he prays that they'll come to understand this love and feel this love that is beyond understanding that surpasses knowledge. So the second is the purpose of preaching. Why do we preach? Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. How are they to preach unless they are sent? Every person in history who has preached the good news has been sent by God, including me today. Because of this, it will not be I who will be preaching to you, but this is just the shell of a man filled with the Holy Spirit that will be saying the word of God, not the word of man. So today I'm just as much of a hearer of the word as you are. Now, the actual purpose of preaching is faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. It is impossible for anyone to be saved without hearing the gospel. God has ordained that the gospel would be spread by the power of the Holy Spirit through the mouth of man. So I want to use as much scripture as possible so as to have every thought or thing that's said be based off of it for this to happen. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, 
and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So his word is sharper than a sword and it pierces you. I mean, that doesn't sound pleasant. (laughs) Um, However, one of the goals is to show you how this is the most loving act that God can show you. It's to make you feel the pain of repentance. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But I know there's some that don't know this. So, for the ones who know exactly what I'm talking about, just worship in this truth of the gospel. And there is nothing before it and there's nothing after it. This is all we have in our faith. There is nothing nothing more than we can do other than just believe the gospel. To the ones who don't know what I'm talking about can either fall into one of two categories. Either one, you've been raised in a Christian home and is just what you do or don't even do. By do, I mean you go to church, maybe read every now and then, and throw up a prayer occasionally. However, you feel nothing spiritually. Or you prayed a prayer when you were little or were baptized, and now give no thought to God, living your life as you see fit, and you also feel nothing spiritually. Or two, you are not a believer. You may not even think there is a God in my prayers that God will pierce your heart with his word and lead you to repentance and faith. For either one of these that you fall into, I'm after your heart and your worship. I want to preach in such a Christ-exalting way that your heart will be exposed and changed. I want you to love God. I don't want you to leave here feeling nothing. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, the words you hear will either be the stench of death or the fragrance of life. You will either be filled with anger at what I'm saying or you will worship God in absolute awe. So we're going to be in John 3.16 through 21 and everything throughout the sermon that I'm going to say is mentioned in these verses. Uh, Many verses, however, are going to be on the screen throughout the sermon because we're going to be all over and there's just no time to flip. So, and the reason for that is I want you to see that without a shadow of a doubt, the love God has for you and the way in which you were saved. So John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Okay, first we're going to cover verses 17 and 18 real quick. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The act of Jesus coming to the earth was only for our salvation, and the act of Jesus taking the wrath of God for our sins did not condemn anyone at all, but sealed salvation for those who were to believe. In verse 18 it says that man was already condemned. Jesus did not have to come to condemn us. We were already condemned. We were already sinners and on our way to hell. So the very fact that Jesus came and walked among us testifies to God's love. But to go on top of that and say he also died for us, that's just, you'll see how that's unthinkable. So verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. At surface level, this verse says exactly what it means. If anyone believes or has faith in Jesus, they will be saved. That's exactly what it means. 100%, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. But you can also read that as, if I can, within and of myself, have faith in God, I will be saved. And that is a valid way to read it, if that were true. I mean, I can read the verse that way and feel nothing. So whenever reading scripture, you must interpret scripture with scripture. You can't take out a verse, even John 3.16, and fully understand it without having other scripture to narrow the scope of interpretation. If Jesus came and died and took the wrath of God for our sins and just left us and said, okay, now who wants it? Who's going to believe? Not a single person on earth would be saved. Now, why would I say that? I mean, not... I mean, who wouldn't want to take the free offer of Jesus? Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The reason not a single person on earth would be saved is because no one wants to be saved. No one wants God. So the first point is God's love is shown in saving us because we would never choose him. Okay. There is no one righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and there is no one who does good. And to all of these things, no, not even one. So let's look back at John 3, John verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. 
The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We saw in Romans 3 that outside of Christ, it says we are all evil. So for those of you who are believers, this was you at one point. Here in verse 19, it says, Light has come into the world, and this light is Jesus. But what is our relation to this light? Because, I mean, we were all evil. John chapter 3, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. We can't come to Jesus because we will not come into the light. We love our darkness and sin and hate God. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Again, we saw in Romans 3 that we were all evil. We all hated God. And some will say, I don't believe that people aren't that bad. We aren't that way by nature. So the problem with philosophy today is this relative truth. In our culture, we believe that we are the source of truth. That's not true because I don't believe it problem with this is that we are not the source of truth. Jesus says in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. All scriptures God breathed is said in 2 Timothy 3:16. God is the source of absolute truth and not us. So what Romans 3 says is truth. Like I said before, we can't cherry pick verses. We have to look at scripture to see if man by nature really is this evil. So let's look at the great flood. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This was before the flood. God says that every, about every man that every intention of the thoughts of our hearts was only evil on the, all the time. That doesn't mean we were 99% evil, but we had 1% good in us. Oh, we were 100% evil 100% of the time. And the next verses, verses 6 through 9, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So how was Noah seen as righteous and blameless among such evil people? I mean, to say he was righteous and blameless means he was 100% good 100% of the time in comparison to being 100% evil 100% of the time. So... I mean, what made him that way? I mean, we're going to get back to how he was that way. First, let's see what didn't make him that way. And I'll give you a hint. He wasn't any better of a person than the people God destroyed. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The problem most of us have is we don't understand how great sin is because we don't understand how holy God is. We think that because we're good in comparison 
to other people around us that God is somehow impressed with us and that we're self-entitled to his love. But God is so much holier than us that even our righteous acts outside of Christ are like filthy rags. I mean, we aren't compared to other people. We don't say, I'm not as bad as that person. I mean, how can God associate me with him and punish me the same punishment he would give him? I mean, I'm so much better. So God doesn't compare us to other people. God compares you to his perfect and holy law, and all of us have broken it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned, and not only that, we are born into sin and deserving of hell from the get-go. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And after the flood, when Noah offers burnt sacrifices, what does God still say about man? Genesis chapter 28, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This time God is more specific about our unconverted hearts. We are born innocent, we are born in sin, and our hearts are evil from youth. Going back now, how was Noah seen as righteous and blameless among such evil people. I mean, how could he be 100% righteous 100% of the time, even though he was born into sin and all of us have sinned and not even our works can save us? The answer is in, is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed a dark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that Noah was seen as righteous, not by his works and being a good person. Outside of faith, Noah was as evil and deserving of God's wrath as every other person who was punished. Romans 14.23 says, Everything that does not come from faith is sin. But how can anyone come to faith if we are born hating God and no one seeks him, as it says in Romans 3? This is the second point. God's love is shown in saving us because he chose us. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace, by grace we have been saved through faith. Grace and faith, grace. <laughs> we are the product of his workmanship. Otherwise, if we chose to love God, we could boast about it and hold it above others, saying, I chose to believe in God. I made the better choice in life than you did, and I would be able to hold that above you. 
but we did not choose to love God on our own. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. God was the one who chose us and loved us first. I mean, this beautiful fact jumps out throughout all the Bible. And uh, I mean, I'm not even sure where to begin. I mean, did Abram choose God or did God choose the pagan Abram? Did Moses choose God or did God choose Moses? And um, I mean, as far as the Christian faith is concerned, our greatest evidence to our faith is the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. But besides that, is also the conversion of Paul. Paul hated Jesus with everything in him. I mean, if there was one person that you would say would never come to Christ, it would have been Paul. And what, had, what happened to Paul? God chose him. He said, you are going to suffer for my name. So, I'm going to try to show you that this beautiful fact is true. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 11. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in the love he predestined us, for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I mean, in love he predestined us. That's the way we have to look at it. So let's look at um, in Ezekiel when... Ezekiel's in the Valley of Dry Bones, and the dry bones represent the um, unconverted Israel. But we can look at it as an unconverted man and how God converts them. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause... Flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And we are dead and powerless. It was God who extended his arm and saved us. We hear that we have to believe in order to be born again. I mean, how can a pal of bones believe? We have to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 3, this is earlier. He's still speaking to Nicodemus. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And notice the wording here. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Not you have to see or believe in the kingdom to be born again. You have to be born again in order to see. Jesus uses the same language about his sheep in John chapter 10, verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not a part of my flock. 
Jesus does not say you aren't my sheep because you don't believe, but instead you don't believe because you aren't my sheep. His flock refers to those who have been predestined for salvation. John chapter 10, verses 28 to 29, this is a couple verses later. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He's still talking about his flock here. First he says, I give them eternal life. Simply meaning just what it says. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life, not anyone who gives himself eternal life. So who does God give? Who does Jesus give eternal life to? Those who God the Father has given to him. Those who God has predestined. Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what Jesus meant by no one can snatch them out of my hand. His sheep are predestined, called, justified, and glorified all by the work and will of God. So how does his will work? John chapter 3 verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Romans chapter 9 verse 16 so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy and now um, I want to show you the infinite amount of love and mercy it would take God to choose us and make us holy and blameless and uh, I have to put uh, point three up now before I get into this. God's love is shown in saving us because we deserve to be destroyed, yet he didn't destroy us. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 19. This is before Jesus was going to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. I'm not saying, look at how much Jesus suffered, but instead look at how evil man is. I mean, again and again, they struck him on the head and spit on him. Here you have the all-powerful, almighty God of the universe on his hands and knees, having his head bashed in by the hands of man. I mean, how evil of an act. I mean, how dare God forgive man? I mean, I wouldn't have hesitated for one second not 
to give them every ounce of wrath within me that they fully 100% deserve. And then, to make it worse, they nail him to a cross, and as he's hanging there, they beg him to come down from that cross and save himself, going, do it! Do it, come down from that cross if you are so mighty. Even though it would have resulted in more than 12 legions of angels coming to completely destroy us all. I mean, there is not one reason in ourselves that we should be saved, but every reason that we should be destroyed. I mean, how... Could God not destroy us? I mean, how could he put his wrath on Jesus, who was perfect in his works and in his faith, 100% perfect, put his wrath that was supposed to be on us because we were 100% sinful, how could he put it on Jesus? And the answer is because for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is how you read John 3.16. Not that God loved us and died for us because we wanted a way to be with him, but that man wanted nothing to do with God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But God, out of his infinite love, wanting to display it for the glory of his name, put his son on the cross to be the object of his wrath rather than us. Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were completely separated and against God, Jesus died for us. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. He made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We were not good and we were not righteous. We were dead and powerless. I mean, our hearts were so in love with evil that there was absolutely no reason for Christ to have died for us. I mean, some will say, uh, I didn't ask Jesus to die for me. And you're right. None of us did. Instead, it was as if we could see Jesus coming towards us and we were just screaming no and that we hate him. Yet out of his love with an outstretched arm, he reached towards us and grabbed us and said, you are mine. And then our hearts were replaced and our eyes were opened to his love. 
and we could see and feel how perfect and holy and loving God is. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So the grace that he showed us in Christ Jesus is immeasurable. I mean, this is the love that is beyond understanding. I mean, that in order for anyone to be saved, God has to save them. We were dead sinners with no ounce of faith in us. We have to be born again to believe, not believe to be born again. I mean, how can a dead man do anything? We will never understand how God could so love the world that he would give his only son in this way. I mean, nothing can surpass knowing this. I mean, depression, did your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse leave you? Did you lose your job, have an illness or chronic health problems? In Psalm chapter 73, verses 25 and 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I mean, he saved me. He saved me. I mean, how... If you actually let that sink in that we were dead and powerless completely against God and he saved me just let that sink in nothing on earth can separate you from this joy nothing No illness, no crisis, no loss. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm. (laughs) Oh, that's good. 
brings me to point four. God's love is shown in saving us because he didn't destroy us, but instead loves us beyond understanding. In the coming ages, meaning all eternity, God will continually keep revealing to us more and more of this immeasurable love towards us. And, I mean, even when we're in heaven, we will never fully understand how much love it would take for God to do this. We'll, he'll just keep revealing more and more to us, and we'll be left saying, yes, more, more. And he will never run out, and we will be infinitely satisfied. So, in closing, Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. And I'm going to replace the word letter with sermon to put it in context here. For even if I made you grieve with my sermon, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that this sermon grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The thing about the gospel is, it doesn't necessarily make the unbeliever feel good at first. Even though it's the most joyful message that you'll ever hear. <laughs> if you've always heard a message that didn't cause this division in your heart, then you may have never heard the gospel or it's just now that God is piercing your heart with his word to cause that division. So, I mean, if you are unrepentant, God wants you to feel broken and sorrowful over your sin. Not just, sure, I would like eternal life. It is his spirit breaking you, tearing out your heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. Psalm chapter 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. But when this work of the Spirit is complete and brings forth repentance and faith, then the joy and love, the all-satisfying satisfaction, will be had for the first time. And you'll say, that's it. You, Jesus, are all I need. And that I never want to be that far from you again. Now, this whole message I've been preaching about the sovereignty of God and how no one can be saved without God saving them. And I know the response to this. Well, isn't it God's fault that I don't believe in him? This part of Romans 1.30 always comes to mind when hearing this. They invent ways of doing evil. You acknowledge him in the very question of why you don't believe in him. So instead of trying to put the blame on God, let's ask the right question. 
Matthew chapter 14, verses 29 and 30. This is when the disciples are out on the boat and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Look at the way he phrased this. Lord, if it is you. Immediately he acknowledges, Lord, if it is you. If you, by saying Lord, he acknowledges that he is the absolute authority over him. And if you command me to come to you on the water, I will come to you because you are Lord. And you have the authority over me to command me of this. And verse 30, he said, come. And look at Peter's response. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And he just says, come. Stop making excuses and repent and believe. Just like it says in Acts 17.30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. You are commanded by the supreme authority in the universe to repent and believe. So when you don't, it is your decision and the blame is on you and not God. Uh, you're probably thinking, Troy, you're just trying to scare me. Yes and no. First, I don't have to try. And second, the wicked have no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, you should have a holy fear of God. And um, if you are hearing this and aren't filled with anger, but instead there's this battle going on inside of you, just come. I mean, obey him as Peter did and submit. And yes, I do still fully believe in the sovereignty of God. Look at this gem at the tail end of the scripture we started with. John chapter 3, verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. What you have, been, what you have done has been done through God. And I want to show you this quote from Jonathan Edwards talking about how our response is not at odds with, God's, with the sovereignty of God. We are not merely passive, not yet does God do some and we do the rest. So it's not God does 50% and we do 50%. But God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all. So God does 100% and we do 100%. For, this, for that is what he produces, namely our own acts. God is the only proper and author and fountain. We only are the proper actors. We are, in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. In the scriptures, the same things are represented as from God and from us. God is said to convert, 2 Timothy 2.25, and men are said to convert in turn, Acts 2.38. God makes us new heart, Ezekiel 36.26, and we are commanded to make us a new heart, Ezekiel 18.31. God circumcises the heart, Deuteronomy 36, and we are commanded to circumcise our own hearts, Deuteronomy 10.16. These things are agreeable to that text, God worketh in you both to will and to do, which is from Philippians 2.13. So God is the one who works in us, who causes us, to believe in him. I mean, for him to do that, it's just amazing. And 
we should rejoice greatly for what he has done for us. But don't forget that it was not only for our salvation that Christ died for us, but also for the glory of his name. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Psalm chapter 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm chapter 23, verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So he's the one who restores my soul. And to do what? To live in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So, point five is... God's love is shown in saving us because he allows us to join him in doing the greatest thing in the world, making his name great. So, repent and believe the gospel. I mean, if you have questions or God is convicting you of your sin, then people will be down here. I mean, I'll be down here. And you can come talk to us and either if you have questions or want prayer we'll do that and I know what sometimes the thought of this is with people I don't want all these people to see me go up front and <laughs> come but these people here will rejoice with the angels in heaven over one salvation I mean there is no condemnation no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, we're going to go into worship through song where we give praise and thanks to God for saving us. I mean, don't hold back and don't rob God from getting all the glory in which the way he saved you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are so holy and loving. I should not be up here. Yet, like Isaiah, you have touched my lips with the coal and cleansed them so that I may speak your words your words do not deserve to come out of my mouth, but you have cleansed me and have made me capable to repeat your word. And I pray that you'll work in the hearts of everyone who hears this, that you are God and you are love, and that they will repent and believe your word and that your name will be glorified. And I always know the answer is, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Oh, you are so holy. 
thank you for this, Lord. Let us praise and worship you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.